Open your Bibles if you have not already. The passage that Luke just read is where we find ourselves in the story, Mark 14. Now, here's how I want to set this up. Um, There's been a lot of academic research recently along this theme that we human beings have a little bit higher impression of ourselves than we should. Uh, In fact, here's what psychologists have started to call this. They've started to call it it the holier-than-thou syndrome. Apparently, we're all infected with it. You thought it was just your extended family. It's apparently all of us. And it goes something like this. We all tend to think we're a little bit more moral than the average Joe, right, or Jane. We all tend to think we're a little bit more generous. We all tend to think we're a little bit more kind than the average person. We all just tend to think we're just a little bit better than the average person. The problem is we can't all be right. (laughs) And so here's how uh, one of these studies, these uh, professors, this is from Cornell in a 2001 study. He put it this way. We knew something had to be wrong when the average person thinks he or she's a better person than the average person. When the majority of Americans consider themselves to be members of an elite moral minority, the math doesn't add up. He went on to say this, We wanted to know whether people feel holier than thou because they underestimate others' moral goodness or because they overestimate their own moral goodness. Very interesting question. Guess which one it turned out to be? We overestimate ourselves. In fact, studies show we actually are able to predict with a lot of accuracy how generous and kind and you know, unprejudiced other people are, but we've got blind spots in our own selves and we don't see uh, some of those lack of good moral traits in our own selves. So here's what studies have shown. Many studies over the last uh, 20, 30 years or so. We tend to think we're more generous than we actually are. We think of ourselves more generously. We tend to think we are less prone to prejudice than we actually are. Dozens of studies have shown that one. Uh, We tend to think we're nicer than we actually are. This one really bothered me. We tend to think we're more attractive than we actually are. Like they did studies, it's like on a scale of one to 10, how attractive do you think you are? It's like everybody's rating themselves like a seven or an eight, you know? It's like, we can't all be sevens or eights, I'm sorry, that's disturbing. Uh, And then the last one, this one is maybe particularly um, appropriate for us in the text that we're going to study. We all tend to think we're able to resist temptation a little bit better than we actually can. We, we think we're just a little bit stronger than the average person. So those other people, they might sort of be prone to you know, overindulge in this or to kind of fall to that temptation. I, 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 know, when, I know where my limit is. I know when enough is enough. I don't have that, that, uh, that propensity for that addiction, et cetera, et cetera. We, we, we are self-deceived. This is the lesson, right? And we're not even in the Bible yet. This is just a lesson from academic studies in psychology. There's a gap between how we perceive ourselves and what's actually true. And this has just actually been proven out through a lot of different studies. And guess what? It didn't take the the Cornell uh, philosophy professors to figure this out. It's right in here. And this has been true for a long, long time. In fact, at least 2,000 years. We know it even goes before that. But the text we're reading today is 2,000 years old, and you have a classic case here of holier-than-thou syndrome on the part of Peter and the disciples. They overestimate their own strength. And we see the response of Jesus is, is really quite gracious. So here's what we're going to do. Uh, let me set a little bit of context. I know Luke's already read the passage. I'm going to reread it a portion of time. This is what we do here week in, week out. Read a couple of verses, talk about them. Read a couple of verses, talk about them. Then we'll, we've got uh, three lessons at the end. This passage is rich 
Like, I wish we could do three or four messages on this one passage. But uh, we're going to do what we can in the time that we have, and, and it's a, a rich, rich text. So here's the context. The Last Supper has just ended. So J.J. last week kind of walked us through the significance of that moment. This was an intimate time of Jesus with his disciples. They leave, and I'm going to pick it back up in verse 26, which was the last verse that J.J. covered last week. They leave, and you're about to see what's going to happen as they're walking away from that dinner. Uh, Mark 14, starting back in verse 26. After singing a hymn, so that's how they ended their intimate time with Jesus during that Last Supper. They went out to the Mount of Olives, and now they're on their way to the Mount of Olives. Verse 27, Jesus said to them, You will all fall away. Because it is written, I'll strike down the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered. By the way, that's, that's a, a prophecy from Zechariah 13.7. Jesus is applying it to them right there in the moment. It's kind of like, surprise, surprise, it's coming true right now. Verse 28, but after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter, right, and Peter rather predictably is the first one to speak here. Peter said to him, even though all may fall away, I will not. You hear the holier-than-thou syndrome coming out of Peter, right? All those other chumps, those other disciples of yours, they might fall away, not me. You know, I'm more dedicated than they are. Verse 30, Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you, this very night before a rooster crows twice, you yourself will deny me three times. So Jesus is saying, this is going down tonight, bro. Like this is happening right here. You're self-deceived. Verse 31, but Peter kept saying insistently, even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all were saying the same thing also. Okay, so there's part one of the text, right? It's the conversation on the way to the garden. Part two of the text, we'll get to in a few minutes, is what actually happens in the garden. The same theme is going to apply to part one and part two. The theme is this. The disciples are not as strong as they think they are, but Jesus is going to show them great grace. So let's talk about part one just uh, a little bit more. How would you respond to a close friend of yours that said to you, you know what, I know we've been through a lot, but I just have this sense when the going gets tough, you're not going to be there for me. You're, you're going to betray me, that you're going to deny me, that you're going to walk away, you're going to fall away. I don't know about you, but, but I, I would dig in, just like Peter. I, I would say, no, no, listen, man, you don't understand. Like, I do care about you. That's real. I'm not blowing smoke. I've not been pretending. You, you remember when we were on the sea together? Do you, you remember when uh, that great moment when, when you know, I, I reminded you of, of, of your inner strength and we overcame together? Do you remember that breakup you had? You know, how I was the one that was there with you, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I'm not going anywhere. So before we kind of like jab on Peter too much, we need to remember this would have been all of our response. No, Jesus, I'm not going anywhere. I've been committed to you through thick and thin for three years. I'm still here. I'm not going. Yet Peter, like us, was self-deceived. In fact, I, I kind of love the way he, he sort of elevates himself above other people, right? Without even realizing it. He's just like, I, I don't care what the rest of them do. That prophecy might apply to them. The prophecy doesn't apply to me. I'm stronger than that. I'm more faithful than that. I'm more dedicated than that. And of course, he's not alone. All the other disciples, the, the end of the text there, and they were all saying the same thing also. So one thing we can draw from this already is, at least as part of the fallen human condition, self-deception is real. Like, it's a universal experience. We all have blind spots. 
So someone comes to you and they point something out in your life and they're like, I, I don't think you're aware of this, but you, know, you, you tend to really do this or you, know, you tend to not be as kind or considerate as, as maybe you could be. Your initial reaction is always defensiveness. Why is it defensive? Well, number one, you don't like the, the view portrayed by you, maybe with criticism. But number two is you don't believe it. You don't believe it. Let me help you out. This is why they're called blind spots. <laughs> we can't see them. So you, you've got stuff back over here. I've got stuff back over here. Uh, Y'all can all see my hand right now. I can't. It's in my blind spot. I'm oblivious to this, right? This is how the human condition is. None of us are as strong as we think we are. And so this theme is already emerging. The theme of the text, I'd describe it this way. Jesus is kind of telling the disciples, listen, men, you're weaker than you think. You're going to stumble. You're going to fall away. You're going to deny me. But then did you catch what he said? You know, right after he said, you're all going to fall. He says, but I'm going to be raised and we'll meet up in Galilee. Translation. You're weak, but I'm strong, and therefore it's going to be okay. And he's already sort of predicting his own forgiveness of their denial and, and, and of their betraying of him. He's already sort of predicting it. We're going to meet up, you see. It's, it's actually a beautiful picture of grace. Pay attention to what Mark is drawing our attention to. It's a combination of, on the one hand, the weakness and unfaithfulness of the disciples. You're all going to fall away. On the other hand, the grace and faithfulness of Jesus. I'm going to be raised up and we'll meet back again. It's going to be okay. There's the theme of our text. Let's see how that theme continues to play out in part two. So now we're going to get into the garden. We're going to pick back up in verse 32. I'll read 32 to 34, and then we'll talk. They came to a place named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here until I have prayed. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be very distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch. Now, this is a very famous scene, right? We've all seen you know, a stained glass window sort of you know, portraying you know, Jesus you know, on the rock, maybe, is how it's portrayed in, in most of the images. And he's crying. We know from some of the parallel passages in other Gospels, he's actually sweating drops of blood here. It's a very intense moment in Jesus' life. And uh, the, the name Gethsemane, Gethsemane excuse me, is very interesting, and it's ironic and symbolic of what's going on here. Gethsemane, it's a Greek word, but it kind of comes over from Hebrew, and it means oil press. Oil press. So here's the picture. Uh, in Israel today, when, when you're on your way from Jerusalem down into the Kidron Valley and then up to the Mount of Olives, guess what? There's a lot of olive trees there, even to this day. In fact, we know with about 95% certainty where this actually happened. You know, within 100, 200 yards, there's still olive trees there today. They're probably the, you know, the descendants of the olive trees that were right here in this, in this place. Well, Gethsemane means there would have been an olive press in this particular garden, right? An oil press. So this is where they would, what they would do is they would take these olives and they would put them in this circular trough and they had this huge heavy stone wheel that they would roll around on this pole and the wheel would pressed down on the olives, and then the oil would come out down this little trough, and they would collect it. The weight 
of the heavy stone rolling around the trough is what compressed those olives down to a pulp, literally. And this is the symbolism of this place where Jesus is. The, the weight is being pressed down on him. And he says, my soul is grieved. He's feeling the weight of the sins of the world that are going to be coming on him. We'll talk more about that for a minute. Uh, what I love about Jesus' vulnerability is he doesn't hide his emotions. Y'all, we see this all throughout the, the Gospels. Jesus is emotionally present. And, you know, some of us have a hard time with that. It's like you we're sort of raised in an environment or generation that says, no, 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 you, you, you just are, are sort of steady and your emotions should be confined to this, um, you know, respectful place. That's not how Jesus lived his life. And so here he's kind of at the end of himself emotionally, you know. Remember, fully man and fully divine. Fully man and fully God, right? This is the mystery of the incarnation. And here Jesus says, my soul is grieved even to the point of death. I don't know that I've ever been that far down, if I'm honest. Many of you have. You know, I know some of your stories in this room. And some of you can look back to a time, maybe you're even there right now, where, where you're not sure if you're going to come back up for air. My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. You know, some of you today, I, you can tune out the rest of all that I say, the rest of this message, but what you need to hear is this. Jesus was there. And so he can be with you there when you're there. You see, this is part of the, the wonderful theology that Jesus not just was, but is still fully man. Like he didn't leave his humanity on earth when he ascended into heaven. To this day, he sits at the right hand of the Father, fully man, fully God. He feels, he knows, he understands. Now, we're going to get into verse 35, and, and we're going to see the, the, the prayer. We, we actually you know, get a behind-the-curtain look at the actual prayer that Jesus is praying. It's remarkable. Look at verse 35. He went a little beyond them, the, the three. He fell to the ground, and he began to pray that if it were possible, the hour might pass him by. And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet, not what I will, but what you will. This is one of the most, I believe, remarkable prayers in the Bible. It's certainly one of the most remarkable and vulnerable moments in Jesus' life. Uh, I, I've got about two and a half pages of notes on these few verses, you know, but they're, they're, they're rich and they apply to us. And, and I'm going to walk into this and we'll really kind of slow down at this point in the text because we want to dig deep. The big idea of Jesus' prayer is expressed in two different metaphors, right? Did you catch that? He's the metaphor of the hour, you know, may this hour pass. And then the metaphor of the cup. May I not have to drink the cup? What are those actually referring to? It, it, you need to know a little bit of, a, of the Old Testament theology to really understand those two metaphors. The hour, consistently throughout Scripture, points to Judgment Day. 
Like that's the metaphor. It, it's not just sort of a, you know, symbolic of something hard he's going to go through. Like, you know, you, you've, you've gone through hard things. I've gone through hard things. We've been through difficult hours. No, no, there's more weight to it than that. This is judgment day. That's what the hour is talking about. Jesus is saying, may the hour pass. May I not have to be the one to bear the judgment day that's been appointed for me. This is what he's praying. And then the, the cup, you know, even a deeper theological significance to the cup. If you want to study it on your own, uh, maybe jot down a few passages. Uh, we won't go into in depth in these texts. Psalm 60, Isaiah 51, and Jeremiah 49. Psalm 60, Isaiah 51, Jeremiah 49. Here's what the cup, each of those references the cup. It's the cup, get this, the cup of wrath. That's what the cup means. That's what the cup is pointing to. It's the wrath of God toward all the evil in the world that's been stored up against the enemies of God since the beginning of time. You talk about a, a weighty, heavy cup. Now, the, the wrath of God, um, we don't like to talk about it today, right? We, we like to talk about the grace of God and not the wrath of God. I think we do ourselves and our world a disservice not to talk about the wrath of God. Now, some of you are thinking, all right, here we come, you know, the, the fire and brimstone, brimstone message. Uh, I, I want to frame this for you a little bit differently. I, I want to talk about the wrath of God in, in maybe a way you hadn't thought about it before because I think we misunderstand wrath. If you think about wrath, it's just sort of like a, a petulant God up in the sky that says, man, I'm angry that people won't do things the way I want them done. Man, I'm angry that they don't obey me and, and meet my every whim and desire, so my wrath is coming. That may be our culture's picture of God. That's not the biblical view of God. So let's talk about wrath. Now, I don't think I understood the theological concept of wrath until I had children. That's actually not meant as a joke, right? I hear a couple snickers there. That's not where I'm going with this. I want to talk about it from a different angle. Um, when, when each of my kids were born, I, you know, I... Jody had three um, C-sections, and, you know, I was there, you know, very, very, like, in intrepidly hiding behind the little curtain thing. And then whenever the baby was born, then I'd pop out, you know, is <laughs> kind of how, how that was. And so um, uh, I, I would hold this, this baby, and, and I, I always felt very selfish in this because I got to be the, the first parent to hold the baby because, you know, Jody's still being stitched back up, right? But I got to hold the child, and, and each time I'm holding the child, I, I just remember, you know, those of you that are parents, you just know some of the emotions that flood over here. And so as I'm holding that little child, I remember the stock coming to me that if anyone so much as laid a hand on this human being in a desire to hurt them, there's something welling up in me that I had never experienced before, right? And even to this day, when I think about the reality that there could be people in our fallen, broken world that are so filled with hate and evil that they would choose, if they had an opportunity, to harm one of my daughters. I feel it. I feel wrath. I feel righteous anger. Now, put yourself in the position of Heavenly Father has created a perfect creation, has created men and women in his own image, and through the deception of the enemy of God, Evil now dominates his creation. This wrath has been stored up since Genesis chapter 3, ready to be poured out 
on the enemies of God. This is the cup that Jesus is facing. This is the righteous, holy, right wrath of God. And Jesus is saying, is there any other way? In fact, one of those three texts, Old Testament texts that I referenced earlier, it, it calls this the cup of staggering. It's so weighty. It's like nobody can stand up under it. They're going to stagger. Notice that Jesus falls to the ground as he's praying. Did you pick up that little detail of the text? Y'all, in that culture, you didn't, you didn't pray prostrate, right? You stood up to pray. And Jesus is flat on his face under the cup of staggering. Now, with all that in mind, like with all that contextual theological background, his prayer at the end is mind-blowingly incredible. Jesus says this, and I want to read it straight to you from the text. Yet, yet, not what I will, but what you will. Now, does that little sentence come alive to you a little bit more? That, you know, Jesus is facing, guys, if you think that the, what he's trying to sort of get out of is, is the, the physical death and the physical torture, that, that, that was like little, little flea bites nipping at his ankles compared to the weight of drinking the cup of wrath stored up against the enemies of God. You know why? You know why? Because when that wrath is poured out, it means utter separation from the Father. Jesus, the second person in the Trinity, since before time has been perfectly united in holy agape love as part of that triune uh, um, unity, is facing a separation from his Father. And so listen to the words of uh, commentator William Lane uh, in his um, commentary on the book of Mark. The dreadful sorrow and anxiety then out of which the prayer for the passing of the cup springs is not an expression of fear before a dark destiny nor a shrinking from the prospect of physical suffering and death. It is rather, and I like these words, it is rather the horror of the one who lives wholly for the Father at the prospect of the alienation from the Father which is entailed in the judgment upon sin which Jesus assumes. Yet, Jesus says, not what I will, but what you will. That's amazing submission. Like, that is, that, that is a remarkable um, prayer. Now, I've been thinking a lot about this in the last couple of weeks, and, and I've decided in my own mind, I think more than any other moment in time for Jesus, this is the moment that the battle was won. And that's not to, um, to demean the moment when, when he says, Father, into your hands I, I commit my spirit on the cross. That's not to demean the moment when, when he was raised from the dead. But in a sense, I follow this, I, I'm not going to don my sword for this, but in a sense, those moments... We're guaranteed the moment he says, not what I will, but what you will, you see. Uh, so raise your hand, just curious. How many of you seen The Passion of the Christ, the, the Mel Gibson-directed film? Okay, most everybody, most everybody. The opening scene of that film, like that's not what we remember. Like there's some other scenes later in the film that probably are most memorable to you. But the opening scene of the film starts in this scene in the garden. 
and Jesus is praying, and he's in the garden, you know, and he's obviously distressed. Well, the filmmakers decided to take a little bit of artistic license in this scene. And typically with biblical films, I don't like that at all. I'm like, no, just stick to the text. But there's actually some, some really good theology that they sneak into the, the film. I'm not saying the whole film's like, like that. But this particular scene, for sure, there is a snake in the garden. And the snake is slithering around near Jesus' feet. Now, is that in the text? No. This is artistic license that the filmmakers are taking. And again, typically I'm, I'm not a fan. But what does that bring your mind to when you see a snake slithering in a garden? <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. Now, there, there is a little word in Genesis chapter 3 when, you know, God's talking about the consequences of sin. You know, he's talking to the snake. You know, you're going to be on your belly, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. He says, you will strike his heel, but the seed of the woman will crush your head. So you get to the passion of the Christ and Jesus is in there and you know the, the snake is coming around. He finishes his prayer and then he does this. He crushes that snake. And the victory is won. And the prayer is, but not what I will, but what you will. And the seed of the woman has crushed the head of the serpent. If Adam and Eve had said that in the garden to begin with, Jesus wouldn't be going to the cross. But he bears the weight and stands in the gap and prays the prayer and makes the commitment and stands firm, which no human being before him could ever do. Not what I will, he says, but what you will. And he's only facing the greatest weight that any human being has ever felt. This is the moment in the garden. Now, with all of that in mind, we get to this incredible contrast in the back half of the text with what's going on with the disciples. Let's look at it, verse 37. And he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep watch for one hour? Verse 38. Keep watching and praying that you may not come into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. So the contrast is stunning. Jesus at his most victorious moment. Now, you know, our, our, sometimes people say this is Jesus at his weakest. Absolutely not. This is the, the shining moment of, of, of sort of decision of Jesus. Yet not my will, but your will be done. And then what are the disciples are doing? He'd ask them to keep watch, stay awake and pray. And instead they're sleeping. But, but even his response to them is gracious. So this comes back to the theme of our passage. The weakness and unfaithfulness of the disciples. The faithfulness and grace of Jesus. He says, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He's giving them the benefit of the doubt. He's already, he's already forgiving them. And we'll come back to that phrase in our application. Well, let's, let's finish out the text, and then I want to draw some lessons. Verse 39, he went away and prayed saying the same words. And again, verse 40, he came and found them sleeping. This is the second time. For their eyes were very heavy and they did not know what to answer him. I, I love that last little phrase. That's how I feel every time I fail God. <laughs> I did not know what to answer. I, I did it again. I, I have no answer. Verse 41, and he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, 
let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Now here the passage has kind of come full circle. Jesus has gotten his answer from the Father and the answer is no, the hour cannot pass by. This is the exact reason that you have come to the earth and been incarnated is for this hour. And Jesus is willing, willing to step into it. Now the first disciple to fall away was who? He's already fallen away at the dinner. You remember who was it that fell away and is going to betray Jesus? Judas. We'll hear more about him next week. Now, Judas has already fallen away, so the ten, or sorry, the eleven other disciples have followed Jesus into the garden. Now he pulled the three out for this kind of a, a little more intimate time, but now all of them are about to about to run away. So next week we're going to see that come into play. They're all going to fall away exactly as Jesus predicted. So what do we learn from this? Like, you know, you know, besides this this idea of the weight that Jesus faced and his victory and these kinds of things, what, what about for us? Like, what's the application for us? I want to come back to this phrase. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think this phrase describes every believer's experience in following Jesus. All of us. All of us. The spirit's willing, but the flesh is weak. What are the implications? What are the lessons from that? There there are three that I want to go through, and I'm not going to have as much time to really unpack these in, in depth, but let's try to hit them as best we can. Lesson number one, we've already said, we are not as strong as we think we are. We are self-deceived. You know, we do overestimate our own strength. Not in all areas, not always, but in certain areas and in certain times. Um, we are not as strong as we think we are. I want you to feel like the weight of that in contrast to what culture would tell you, okay? Culture would say, you've got everything you need right here. It's all inside you. If you just kind of do the right self-help method or if you dig deep or you just kind of grit your teeth or if you just, you know, if, if you, you can do whatever you want, you've got it all in and of yourself. You are a, a self-actualized, self-sufficient individual. That's not what scripture would teach. And so oftentimes, not always, learning to think theologically means learning to think counterculturally. And this is one of those times. Let me, let me just point you to a couple texts, and I'll just go through these rather briefly. John 15, right? This is a conversation Jesus had the same night earlier at the dinner. John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, he tells his disciples, you are the branches. He who abides in me, that means remain or lives in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit. Listen to this last phrase. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I've heard one person say one time, that may be the hardest part of the Bible for me to believe. Apart from Christ, I can do nothing. Nothing. Listen to 2 Corinthians 4.7. This is Paul writing this. I love this text. But we have this treasure in jars of clay, right? Or earthen vessels. It's a weak outer shell. Like this is describing us. Why do we have treasure in jars of clay? Why would God put something valuable in something weak? so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not of ourselves. Don't think too highly of yourself, then you ought. You're you're a jar of clay. And then uh, Paul writing later in that same letter, 2 Corinthians 12, he has said to me, Paul says, my grace is sufficient for you for power is perfected. Where? Not power is perfected in self-help and self-actualization and digging deep. Power is perfected in weakness. In weakness, most gladly, therefore, I will rather boast about my weaknesses, Paul says, so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. You see, weak flesh, powerful God. 
See, same theme. It's all throughout the scripture. Why is it so important that you think rightly about your own weakness and your own, your, your propensity to fall and your propensity to stumble? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, the hymn says. Why is it important to remember that? Let me just give you an example real quick before we move on to lesson number two. All of us are more prone to temptation than we think we are. We all think we know our limits. Okay, so let me give you an illustration. Um, There's so many stories out there of pastors or elders or just men and women who have wrecked their ministries, wrecked their careers, wrecked their marriages, wrecked their families because they've fallen into serious sin and, and they've made mistakes that have had consequences the rest of their lives. You know, maybe some of you in this room have experienced that in a taste. You know what they all have in common? They all have in common this exact same mindset. There was a period of time that they're standing right here on the edge, right? And and they all thought they had their secret sin under control right up until the moment that it ate them alive. And so out of love for you as a pastor, I have to tell you, some of you in the room, you're you're, you're right here on the edge. And and you think, you know, I'm not that far gone. I have enough control over this, okay? This is not something we can mess around with because we're not as strong as we think we are. You're more self-deceived than you think. And, and I've got I've to read these, again, words of Paul. So if you think you're standing firm, this is 1 Corinthians 10, if you think you're standing firm, many of you in this room, you think you're standing firm, listen to this next phrase, be careful that you don't fall. And then here's some hope. No temptation has overcome you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Now, don't misinterpret that verse. That verse doesn't mean, so go ahead and stand out right here and I'm not going to let you fall because no temptation has seized you beyond what you can bear. I'll provide a way out. Okay, listen, the way out is, is not something um, inside of you that, that sort of wells up and says, no, I actually have more strength than I thought I can. That's not the way out. You know what the way out is? The way, the way out is something external to you that, that rescues you. The, the way out is for you asking the spirit of God that dwells in you is not you, but dwells in you. There's a distinction of those two. Say, help, help. For some of you, you need to ask God for help and you need to turn to someone that cares about you and say help. Like, here's the big, the big question. You're gonna fall if you don't cry help because you're not as strong as you think you are. All right, that's lesson number one. Now, lesson number two flows right out of it. Therefore, We must learn to live dependently on something other than ourselves. If you're not as strong as you think you are, you got to learn to live on something outside of yourself, right? Something that you can depend on other than yourself. Now, verse 38, Jesus tells Peter, keep watching and praying. So here's the reason why. So you may not come into temptation. Why was... Jesus encouraging Peter to pray because he needed help and he didn't know it. He was about to fall and he was clueless. So Jesus saying, you got to keep praying. You got to keep crying out for help. Isn't that what sort of the, the root prayer, the essence of the core prayer in all of our hearts is? It's just the help. Prayer is, is a lot more than that, but at its core, I, I think it starts with God help. That's kind of what prayer is, at least as a starting place. Um, 
It's been a couple months now, but uh, I was with you teaching a text back in, in Mark chapter 9 when the disciples tried to cast out a demon in a young boy and they couldn't do it. And Jesus comes down from the mountain of transfiguration and he does it immediately. And then after they say, Jesus, why couldn't we do it? You know what he says? The reason you couldn't do it is because you didn't pray. You, 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 in other words, you tried to do it without help. You tried to do it without engaging the external power that is here available for you, but you got to cry out help. You got to ask for help. We were not designed to live independently. There's another countercultural message for us. Here's another way to think about it. Neediness, at least, you know, the healthy kind of neediness of dependence on God. Okay, don't, don't, don't take neediness too far. Neediness is not a design flaw. It is a feature. It's how God engineered us. All right? Now, it's interesting that Jesus told his disciples over the Last Supper, says, I will give you, when I go, I will give you a helper capital H, right? Second, uh, third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is called the helper. We are to pray. We are to depend. We are to ask for help. We are to live dependently, not independently. So one way to think about sin, we've talked about this before, and I can't go too long, but I've got to say this. One way to think about sin is this way, y'all. Every sin you ever commit at some level is a step away from dependence on God toward independence from God. At its core, every sin entails that. It's like, you know, God, I don't know that you really have my best interest in mind and that you really want me to be full of life and happiness and joy and, and pleasure, so I'm just going to step away from this just to, to grab onto something over here because I think I need it. Stepping away from dependence toward independence. The problem with that move is it's actually self-sabotage because you were engineered to live over here. So it's a little bit like a, a beautiful lamp shining in the corner. It says, I don't want to be in the corner anymore. I want to be in the center of the room. The problem with that is the cord doesn't stretch that far. So it unplugs itself and plants itself in the center of room for all to see. The lamp has lost its purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that you don't have freedom of will and, and choice and, and a certain degree of, of, of independence that, that God allows. But listen, y'all, freedom is most fully realized and expressed within a dependent relationship on the one who created you. That, there's true freedom there. All right? We've got to learn to think a little bit differently uh, about these ideas. Okay, I've, I've got to move on to lesson three. So lesson number two, you've got to learn to live dependently on something other than yourself. And that thing is actually a one, it is a person. It is God himself, particularly through our relationship with the Spirit who indwells us. And then finally, last lesson, you will never outgrow your need for grace. That's a really good thing. Disciples had had a lot of highs and lows up to this point, right? It's like, Jesus, you know, you think they're making progress and they're about to have their greatest failure on their entire lives is going to be on the next page, okay? Three years into their fellowship of the Messiah, like face-to-face, -face, eating with him, talking to him, doing miracles with him. You will never outgrow your need for grace. I will never outgrow my need for grace. And that's a good thing. You see, we tend to think of grace 
as just the starting place of the Christian life, right? You know, by grace we are saved. Absolutely true. But grace is the starting place of the Christian life. Grace is the finish line of the Christian life. And grace is every mile marker in between the two. I want you to see something, last, last thing I want you to see in this text. How is it that the Father can be so gracious to us when we sleep, when we fall into temptation, when we're not as strong as we think we are? How can the Father be so gracious to us all throughout our entire lives? Because the Son drank the cup. He drank your cup. He drank my cup. And so we need grace. We need grace. And so this is how we're going to respond. This is how we're going to begin to live out what the Spirit has been speaking to us through this passage this morning is I'm going to pray the simple prayer. Hopefully you will join in with me. It's a prayer that simply says, Lord, I need you. I need you. Then after I pray it, we're going to sing it. Same prayer. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you. Bow your heads. Our Father, you were so kind to create us small. And you have woven into us a childlike dependence upon you. And I hope we have eyes to see that this morning and to actually own it. And so, Father, I think about the moment in this text when, when Jesus called you Abba. He said, Dad. And, and what, what amazes me is that even though Jesus is equal to you in this mysterious trinity, he even recognized he should submit to his dad and he was safe in the relationship with his dad. And so, Father, I pray that we would be able to do that. I pray that we would be able to cry out, Lord, I need you. And as, as Mandy was talking about earlier, I, I don't just need you occasionally. I don't just need you on certain days. I, I don't just need you when I, when I see my own weakness. I need you all the time because I am weak. I need you right now. I'll need you the next moment. I'll need you the next moment. I need you in my relationships. I need you in my career. I need you in my marriage. I need you in my parenting. I need you in, in my witness. I need you to breathe. And so, Father, would you rescue me? Would you rescue us? Would you pull us back from the ledges that we tend to sort of creep up on? And, and even those that are not right on the ledge, would they recognize their propensity toward falling and may they cry out Abba I need you would you help me because we know that this is a prayer that you always answer with provision so we pray that right now even as we sing amen